maybe you've heard the saying before, or, or I've heard this said several times as it pertains uh, to having children. And it goes something like this, that if you wait until you're ready, you'll never do it. Uh, people always say that when somebody's pregnant, well, are you ready? And they're like, I don't know. And it's like, the truth is none of us are when we have, have kids. We, we, we start out in that and a lot as a parent is, is trying to figure this out and seek to learn and to grow as you go and, and how to love your children and, uh, how and when to say no and the right boundaries to put on it and what that looks like. And it's a constant, uh, learning experience as you go with your children. And so you have to learn to say no, right? You, you love these children and you care for them and you love them so much. You want to give them everything they want, but you recognize there's some things that you should say no to. And so there's boundaries that have to come up and you have to start to do that. Like in my house, it's a, you can't have candy for dinner. You can't just have candy and potato chips. That does not equal a meal. You're not allowed to do that or, or, or different things that we say regularly that we have to come back to. No, you can't stay up as late as you want. I know it's the summer now, but you cannot stay up to all hours and you can't sleep all day and you can't. And all the things that we start to put boundaries into place because we want to raise our children uh, uh, to be uh, good members of society and be gracious and kind. And as believers, I want to raise my children to know and love God more than anything else, to see his grace to them in everything. And so parts of that and teaching to disciple uh, our own children is there's times that we have to put boundaries there. We have to say no and we have to bring those things back into balance. And so come under the things that God has told us. And so as we're doing that, even with our own children, uh, we're reminded of how God does that with us. That God has revealed himself to us in his word. He has told us what he's like and how we relate to him and how we approach him, what those things look like. And in that, because God is the perfect loving father and he alone is a good that he tells us things that are best for us. As the creator and sustainer of all creation, God alerts us to the way his creation works. Uh, we just I just read the passage to you and said, this is the word of the Lord. And we say, thanks be to God. And the reason we do that here and the reason we say that is we're saying, thank you, God, for revealing yourself to us and who you are and what you're like. And so the creator God of the universe has revealed himself to us and what it looks like uh, to follow him and to respond to him and the things that we need to say no to and the things uh, on how his creation best works. And when we in, in our, our, our sinfulness and our our human nature, we rebel against him. And oftentimes we decide that we maybe know better or we think we know better. God tells us some things and we go, I, I don't know, maybe I'm not going to do it quite like that. And, and that's what is at the heart of sin. Sin, I say this frequently, if you've been around our church any amount of time, that sin is ignoring God and the world he created or rebelling against God and the world he created. That as the creator and sustainer of all things, he knows how his creation works best. And as a loving God, he's made known to us what that looks like in his word. And so when we decide to go against what God has said, that is what we call sin. We're ignoring the one who created all things, who knows best, who puts it together. And we say, you know, I think I know better. That's the original sin. That's Adam and Eve. You can be like God. You don't need God to define this for you. You can do it yourself. And so we come back to that and I bring that up a lot and I, and I define it that way regularly that we're reminded that all sin is against God. We live in a very relativistic society at this point. Everything is OK as long as you're OK with it. That's kind of the way we operate. If you're OK with it, and you're not hurting anybody. Do whatever you want. 
But the Bible doesn't define sin that way. It says that it's ignoring God, that it's rebelling against what God has said and the way he has revealed himself and who he is. And as the creator, that is his prerogative. But we also know as a good God, he's doing that for our best. But so often we decide based on maybe circumstances, uh, the way we perceive things, the way they are, that we know better. And I start there because that's exactly what happens in the first few verses of Jonah. So we're going to work our way through this book that we talked about last week, just as way of introduction. But right there at the very beginning, it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it for their evil has come before me. But it says, but Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. And he went down, he bought a ticket and got on a boat. And it says he went the opposite direction. And we talked about last week his way of introduction to the book of Jonah, maybe why some of the reasons he did that. What we know about Nineveh, it was the capital of Assyria and the Assyrians were a brutally violent people. Uh, the evilness of that place and the things that they would do. We talked a little bit about that last week. You can go and look in history. And, and as I mentioned last week, one historian said they have a uh, history that is as brutal as any in the history of the world. And so when God says to Jonah, I want you to get up and go to this place and proclaim to them what they're doing. It was a you can understand from his perspective why he didn't do that with what he could see in front of him. It didn't make a whole lot of sense to him. In fact, to this point in the Old Testament and what God has revealed to us, there were prophets that God rose up and at different times they would make proclamations against evil nations or say different things. But this is the first time ever that God took one of the prophets in Israel and said, I want you to go to that other place. Not just proclaim against what they're doing evil, but I want you to go into that great city and stand there and proclaim. And you start to put those things around what Jonah was doing. It'd be kind of like God calling you and saying, I want you to go into the middle of ISIS and proclaim what they're doing. And you'd be like, I don't know that I'm real excited about that call. Right. I don't know that how ready I am to go and do that. And so I start there because we do this sort of thing all the time. We let what we see in our experience and our circumstances and what's going on in our life stand above what God has said. We do it regularly. Maybe not as, as big as go and move to this place, but maybe it is. But regularly in different things, we don't do or we ignore God and what he's told us. And we're really good at making excuses why we do so. Our heart is deceitful. Our, our sin nature, it's easy for us to kind of work our way around. Right. It's easy for us to say, well, yeah, yeah, but he can't mean that. And so all sorts of ways we do this regularly. Right. We we can say um, God tells us to give and give generously. And we go, yeah, but I got a lot of bills. I got a lot of things I'm juggling. And if God knows my circumstances and he knows my situation and he knows that wouldn't really work. Right. Like we, we can kind of do that in our own heart. He really knows. He gets me. He knows what's going on. Or uh, God says uh, we're to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. Or when people revile you instead of returning the same sort of ugliness, you're supposed to be forgiving and gracious. Peter says that when it comes at you, you give back the way Jesus did. Even when they reviled him, he didn't do it in return. And we're called to do the same. 
And we go, yeah, 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 I believe that. Except this person really wronged me. Or this person was really ugly. And so it's okay in this circumstance. And so what we do is we take the circumstances of our life and we let them sometimes stand over what God's word says. Or we kind of massage the truth or we kind of go, ah, take this little part of this verse over here. And I think I can twist that to mean that what I'm doing is the right thing. And so in a lot of ways, we're just like Jonah here. When we see something that's out of alignment with what we think is the best thing to do or the way we would do it, oftentimes we just go, ah, sidestep that. And so what I want us to do as we look at the beginning of Jonah chapter one today is really just think for a minute about the nature of sin. Jonah just blatantly disobeys God. That's our definition, that sin is ignoring God or rebelling against God in the world he's created. That's exactly what Jonah does, right? God says, go to this place. And he says, I think I will go the other way. So I want us to think first about the nature of sin. Then secondly, I want us to think about when we look at this passage, how God is working even in our rebellion. That God is gracious and is good and even in our rebellion, he is at work. And then lastly, how we begin to kind of see this come together and what God is teaching us as he's working through our rebellion. So let's just start with the nature of sin. Big picture here, right? If ignoring God or rebelling against God and the world he created his sin. I want us to think deeper about that, that sin is, um, is thinking that we know better than God. But if we really distill that down, in a lot of ways, what we're saying is we're trusting ourselves over trusting God or we're putting our faith in our own faculties and understanding more than we're putting our faith in God. And so maybe you've heard us say this. We talk about sometimes in our missional community groups, talk about it uh, in smaller groups as we're meeting like DNA groups, that the idea of sin is unbelief. There's something that we're not believing is true about who God is. And so I would go so far to say that all of us, whether we are a Christian or not, are unbelievers. And let me clarify that. That doesn't mean that you don't know God. Doesn't mean that you haven't put your faith in Jesus. Doesn't mean that you're not in a saving relationship. But what I mean is at different times throughout your life and your day is there are going to be times when you operate in unbelief. This is what God says But here's the circumstance and the situation. And I let that stand over what I know to be true about God. And so I make a decision to be uh, not trust God, not believe God, but to believe my own intuition in this situation. And we do that all the time. And that's exactly what Jonah was doing here. And I want us to think about what happens and and just maybe an example of that. Uh, Think about the Ten Commandments. The first and second commandment, no other gods and then no idols. Right. Sometimes when we talk about idolatry, uh, we can kind of gloss over that in the Bible. We go, well, I don't really have any idols in my house. I don't really think about it that way. But idolatry is really taking something in God's creation and putting it over and above God, beginning to worship it, beginning to get our meaning and our life and our identity from these things. And so idolatry is not really about just a carved image or a a picture or something that we're. it can be anything that we're worshiping in our life. And so there's a whole lot of things that can start flooding in if we start to think about that, if we start to diagnose our own heart. And some of the ways that we get at that is we start to ask the question of like, where do I get my greatest sense of self-worth? If somebody asks you about you, what's the thing you want to lead with? Right. I want to tell you this about me because that's what I the way I see myself. Most importantly, um, almost always when we get into this idea of idolatry, it's good things 
Right? And the reason that they rise to this level of being above God and importance is because they're good things. And they're naturally, a lot of times, good gifts that God's given us. And so if God's made you really good at your job and you're really successful in it and you're proud of like, look at what I've done and all these things, it can start to creep in to, to vie for your affection or your identity more than your relationship with God. The one I think of most naturally is my identity being tied to my children. Right? When, when you have kids, uh, they're born and there they are and they hand them to you. And all of a sudden you're completely and totally in love with this child immediately. There they are. And you can't explain it. And you don't even know exactly how you can have such tense, intense feelings and emotions. And there it is. And you're holding this child and you love them and you want to do anything for them. And you want to care for them and, and give them all the things they want. And how quickly this good gift that God's given you can start to overtake him can become the thing in your life. And if it starts to become the thing in your life that your life centers around, it can start to replace God in that place. And when that happens, it's a disaster. It's a disaster because your children were not made to be the center of your life. They can't withstand that. God alone is the center of all things, is the creator and sustainer of all things. And when we put anything in his rightful place, we've misordered the way God has made his creation. Augustine would say that all of our problems come from misordered loves, right? It's good to love your children. It's good to love your family. It is not good to love your children or your family more than you love God. Right? That's why Jesus would come and say, if you're going to be my disciple and you're going to follow me, you have to hate your mother and your brother and your father. He goes through that whole list, right? And you hear that and you're like, wait, what? You have to hate them? But in Semitic language, what Jesus was saying is that you need to love me so much more than you love anyone else in your life. He didn't literally mean you hate your family. He meant you love me so much that it looks like hate in comparison. And what he was saying is I am the only thing that is built to be the center of your existence. And that's why God tells us don't have idols because he knows when we take anything else and put it in its, his rightful place. It's going to start to collapse. It's going to start to have problems. If you do that with your children, they'll disappoint you because they can't stand in that place. But you will also start to mess them up royally because they'll grow up thinking they're the center of the world. And that's a disaster because they're not. None of us are. God alone is. And so I want you to start to think about that in terms of sin and what we're doing when we start to follow, ignore what God has said and place other things in his rightful place, it starts to have these areas. You see how that is unbelief. You follow, right? I'm not believing that God has said not to put anything else in his rightful place. And because I love my children so much, it's very subtle and deceptive for me to even do that. Because we all say it's good to love your kids. It is. They're a good gift from God, but they're not the thing that you're supposed to base your life around. And so these things can be very deceptive very subtle in the deception of our heart. But it's unbelief when we start to do that. And so we need ways to expose the unbelief in our heart so that we grow in belief of who God is and the way he's revealed himself. And so one of the things that we do here, uh, sometimes in smaller groups or in our DNA groups, our missional community groups, maybe you've uh, heard Luke or I talk about this or you've been exposed to it, as we talk about putting God in under four big categories, what we call the four G's. And when we say that, we say God is great and he's gracious and he's glorious and he's good. 
Now, this is an oversimplification of everything that God is. But as you start to work your way through these big four, uh, you can start to see the areas that you're not believing what is true about who God is. So when we say God is great, we mean uh, God is sovereignly in control of all things. That he is there's nothing that is outside of his control. And so I try to control things when I believe God's not in control. Right. Do you see the direct correlation between my sin, my unbelief and not believing God is great? And then the things that I try to do, you see it perfectly here with Jonah. Right. God says, go into that place that's really scary. I'm telling you to go there. And he goes, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that you're completely in control over there because they're pretty evil. So I'm not going to go there. Do you see how the unbelief is leading him to go the other way? The same is true when we don't believe that God is good, that he alone can satisfy our needs. So if I'm not believing that God is good, I might seek to get my identity from my children, make them the center of my life rather than God the center, because I don't believe God can satisfy me completely. And my children now are vying to do that and they can't do that. It's a disaster. Or we say God is glorious and so I don't have to fear others. And what we mean by that is that I don't have to worry about what other people think of me more than what God thinks of me. So if God says do this and all my friends say, yeah, it's stupid. I care more what God thinks than what people think. That's what we mean when we say God is glorious. Or we say God is gracious. I don't have to prove myself. I'm accepted fully and completely and totally because of what Jesus has done for me and nothing else. And I can rest in my identity in him. So what we mean by God is gracious. And so by having that tool, it helps to diagnose my heart and the areas that where I'm in unbelief. So I'll start to see that I'm frustrated right now in this. I'm anxious right now in this because I'm not believing that God is great. I'm not believing God is gracious or I'm trying to prove myself by my performance rather than resting in the finished work of Jesus. If that's new to you, we'll come back to this at the end. But if that's new to you, we actually have cards to help you do that. There's four of them, four G's. There's one card for each one. They have diagnostic questions to help you kind of go through. Am I operating in unbelief right now? And this is at the very heart of discipleship that we want to grow from unbelief to belief We want to grow in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life. And when we start to see the reasons why we're not, it helps point us more fully to who Jesus is. And that's very important for all of this. And that's exactly what Jonah is doing here. He's not believing God is great. Uh, He's he's at different times in the book, not believing he's glorious. He certainly and I talked about this last week and we'll come back to it at different times. He's certainly not believing God is gracious in the way he responds to different people throughout the whole of the book. He's not seeing God's grace to himself and then he's then not gracious to others. And it's obvious that he's not trusting that God is gracious. And so you see all of this kind of working in the background. But it's important for us to have tools to help diagnose what's going on on in our hearts. And I say this for this reason. and It's so important. I am not interested in behavior modification. I don't think that's what God calls us to. I don't want to just stand up and tell you a bunch of things that you should and shouldn't do and wag my finger at you. Say, don't do that and do this. Because the promise is that as Christ comes into our life, he changes our affections. He begins to make us into a new creation. And we want to do these things. 
and he increases our faith. And it's a gift of the spirit working in us and our faith. And so we want to point back to the very things of who God is and what he's done and live up into that our identity in Christ. And then that has effects on the way we live. But it's a true heart change. And God says that over and over throughout the Bible, that that's what he is after. And so it's important when we start to think about all that, that sin is a heart level thing. That I'm missing uh, who God is and I'm, I'm operating in unbelief. Right? We could talk about Jonah and be like, he was disobedient and he should be obedient. But if we don't get to the heart issues of why we're not going to see how God answers those. So the first part I just want you to see is, is that in our unbelief, a sin is unbelief. That we're not believing fully who God is and the way he's revealed himself. And so the second thing, though, that we see right here at the beginning of Jonah is that in our belief and in our unbelief and in our sin, that God will allow consequences to come for our sin. Uh, You see it right here at the beginning with Jonah. It says Jonah rose and flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Right. And he pays his fare. And it says he goes the opposite way. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea that the ship was threatened to break up. God brings this storm. And it's almost immediate in God's response to Jonah's sin. He immediately brings this storm into his life to kind of shake him out of his disobedience, to alert him to how he is not believing about who God is and who uh, just think about it. If he's not believing God is great and he's in control of all things and then God brings this incredible object lesson of I am in control of the sea. And he starts to kind of shake this boat and it becomes very apparent to all on it that this is not a natural thing happening. These are seasoned sailors that are like, we're going to die and there's something bad wrong here. This is not just a normal storm. And so God allows Jonah to feel the consequence of his sin almost immediately. Now, when we start to talk about consequence for sin, there's a lot of nuance, important nuance in the Bible as we think about it. And so we need to step back for just a second as we start to think about this. Here we see God directly responding to Jonah's sinfulness, to his disobedience, his unbelief. But the Bible, although we see that at different times in the Bible, we cannot say that anything negative that comes into your life, any tragedy, any struggle, any hardship is directly related to a sin in your life. Sometimes people try to do that and they'll come and they'll tell you, I've sadly heard this in a hospital before. With a child sick and then looking at the parents and going, well, what did you do? What sin is in your life that God's punishing? God's not like that. And he's gracious and he's long suffering. There are times that in his sovereignty that he brings a direct consequence for a sin. We see it at different times in the Bible. You see it right here. Uh, You see it in Korah's rebellion in Numbers chapter 16. The rebellion against Moses and his leadership and God wipes them out in that moment. You see it in the New Testament with Ananias and Sapphira, right? Acts chapter five. They say they sold some land and they say we're bringing all of it before God. And they walk in and they lie and they lay down their thing. And Peter says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And they fall down dead. And we go, whoa, that's pretty intense. God would be perfectly just. And we talked about this last week in the moment that we sin to strike us dead. 
But in his graciousness and in his kindness and in his long suffering, he doesn't do that. And so here's what I want you to be careful. God would be just to do that. I think there are times when God does do things like that, but we are not privy to when that's the case. And we're not to walk around pronouncing judgment of you're going through this because you did that. But God can and he does bring those and he brings a very powerful object lesson to Jonah right in this moment. And he hits him with a storm in his unbelief, in his disobedience. But then God also allows consequences to come into his creation uh, as it's been infected with sin. Romans chapter eight says that God has subjected creation to futility and he's done it in hope. Right. That because sin has entered into the world, God has put into the creation a futility that comes when we're operating apart from him. The sin causes consequences. And that's a hard thing for us to hear that God has allowed that to be part of the creation as we rebelled against him. But what Romans eight says is that God does it in hope. He's showing you the futility of things in your life as you seek to live apart from him, as you seek to make other things the center of your being. And God does it because he's gracious. Because those things lead to nothing. So when God says don't have idols in your life, if you build your life around your children or you build your life around the car you drive or the house that you have, or you build your life around your identity as a business person. All of those things will leave you empty. None of those things will satisfy you. There's a futility built into that because they cannot withstand the weight of being the thing in your life because God alone is the thing. And so he builds that futility into creation. And so we feel it. Oftentimes it's not the, the intense object lesson that Jonah gets here, the immediate storm. It's a, a subtle uh, gnawing that happens over and over. We seek to get our identity from these other things and it doesn't work. And then we go, oh, I'll try it again this way. And it still doesn't work. And I'll try it again this way or I'll switch it to something else. Or I'll get a new car. And then two years later, I'll get a new car and then I get a new car. And then you're like, it's still just the car. Right. Or, or whatever it is, plug in whatever that is. There's a futility built in and that is God's grace that he does that. And so he allows us to feel those consequences. But then sometimes there's another category. There's the futility built in. There's God's direct. But then as we are sinful people rebelling against God, we hurt one another. We bring wounds. We bring hardships because of our rebellion. Other people get hurt. In fact, you see this in this story. Jonah rebels, runs from God, gets on a boat and these poor sailors get caught up in all this. They're like, what is happening? Right. They go and wake him up. They're like, what are you doing? They quickly find out it's kind of his fault. But they're in all of it, too. They're throwing stuff overboard. They're afraid they're going to die. And so that happens when we are sinful and we are rebelling against God, when we're believing in unbelief, people get hurt by that. But here's the good news in all of this. God is at work in the consequences of our sin. It's because God loves us that he's built in that futility. It's because God loves us that sometimes he brings his judgment at that moment. I mentioned Ananias and Sapphira, two people that get struck down dead at the beginning of the early church in Acts chapter five. 
You go, whoa, that's pretty intense. But I think God was teaching a valuable lesson to that community at that moment and that time. And that seems really harsh to us. But at the early stages of the church, as the gospel is going out, how important that was. And God is working in his grace at all these different times to awaken us to the futility of sin. And that can be really, really hard. And I don't say that lightly because I know every single person here has gone through different seasons in their life when it's been really, really difficult. Whether it was your own sin or it was someone else's sin or you got hit from the collateral of somebody else. And those are difficult, difficult times. Oftentimes, we don't get it as clearly as Jonah right here. We don't get hit with it and we jump overboard and God swallows us with a fish and works through all that, right? It doesn't usually happen like that. It's usually a long, slow burn that takes a long time. And part of the reason it's a long, slow, subtle burn like that is because we're very hard-headed. We're really good at justifying our sin. We're really good at going, I got it together. I think I've got this figured out. Sometimes it takes a long time because we're ignorant of what God says. His word clearly says things and we don't do it. And sometimes that's ignorance. Sometimes it's willful ignorance, but sometimes it's just we don't know. And so we continue to make the same mistake over and over again because our hearts are deceitful. We're quick to make excuses for ourselves. And so I tell you, that's why it's so important we have things like uh, tools like the four G's. But more importantly than that is that we live in community together. Because so often we are good at hiding those things. We're good at justifying it. We're good at seeking out advice of people that will be like, no, 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 you're right. You're doing it exactly right. Keep doing that. Instead of what God tells us to, to live in community, to seek wise counsel, to be able to speak the truth and love to one another. It's much easier to see other people's sin than it is to see your own. Sadly, right? It's easy to point it out to other people. You know, it's a lot harder to hear that, but we desperately need that. And that's why God calls us to live in community together, that we need people to be able to speak the truth and love to us and point those things out. And if we would do it in the way that God calls us to, with Jesus being the center, the gospel being the heart of everything we say and do. That we're coming back. Remember, when I was talking about the four G's, the idea there is not to point out to one another, you're not believing God is great. It's to remind you that God is great. You're not in control and you don't have to be because God is and that is good news. It's not to beat you up. It's to encourage one another as we go along the way and point each other to what Jesus has already finished and done. But instead, oftentimes we continue to in that cycle of our unbelief. And so God is gracious enough to allow us to feel the consequences of that. C.S. Lewis once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That God graciously allows us to feel the consequence of our sin to awaken us. Storms awaken us to the truths we would not see otherwise. I think God knew that's what it was going to take with Jonah in this situation. It's going to have to take a swift and clear and direct storm in his life to waken him up. 
then I want you to remember that God is working in all those things. And I know sometimes that can be hard to believe. In the middle of a very difficult thing, it's hard to say, uh, as James does in James chapter one, consider it all joy, brothers, when you go through various trials, because God's working in this to show you what he's like and who he is. And it's very hard in those moments to say that. And the only way we get to those moments and be able to say that, and this is where Christianity stands apart from anything else in all the world. Is that we have a God that is not far off, but he has entered in and he's come to us. And he stepped into this world and he's gone through the things that we go through and he feels them and he knows them and he's not far off. He's experienced them. He's gone directly through the storms. Not only has he gone directly through the storms, he's willfully stepped down and said, I will take it all upon myself. Now, Jonah couldn't see all that on the the front side of the cross, but we can see it because we know the whole of the story and what Jesus has done. And Jesus comes and says, I'll take your sin upon me. He who knew no sin becomes sin on our behalf that we can become the righteousness of God and him. And he says, I will do what you can't do for you and I will pay for it. And he proves to us that he's good. He proves to us that he's great. He proves to us that he's glorious and he proves to us beyond a reasonable doubt that he is gracious in what he does for us on the cross. That we can trust him in all circumstances and in all things. And the cross proves it. That he loves us that much. That he would come to do what we could never do for us. And he says, you come to me who are tired and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. Stop with all the things that you're trying to put in this place and you come to me and you trust me. And that's the heart of what God's doing when he allows us to feel the consequence of our sin. It's for our good. That's why we can say what Romans 8 says, that God works all things together for those that are called according to his purposes. He's going to take all these areas where we've rebelled and he's going to bring us to this understanding of how these things are desperately our need for him. And then he meets us in the middle of it. And that is his wonderful grace to us. But the truth is we need each other to be reminded of that. We need other people speaking into our life and continually reminding us. See, the truth is when I get in the the middle of my circumstances and what I'm struggling with, it's hard for me to see it. It's hard for me to see past what's going on right here. But I need brothers and sisters coming along with me to go, hey, that's not the truth. This is what's true and this is who God is. And that helps us to grow in our faith and putting it in God's grace and what he's done for us. In Jesus. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of what you've done for us. I thank you that uh, even in our daily battle with unbelief, even in the days when we embrace our unbelief, that you are still gracious, that you are still calling us, that you are still allowing us to feel the consequences of, of our rebellion, but that you stand there pointing us to the great grace that is found in you. And so we thank you. I pray that you would give us eyes to see uh, where we're struggling with others, that you would help us as a community of believers to walk closely together, to be able to speak the truth to one another, to point each other more fully to who we are in you and what it means for us. 
We thank you for your great grace and what you've done for us in Jesus. And we pray all of it in his precious name. Amen.